Okay, so let's, uh, we're on the fourth teaching now, uh, concerning the Bible, our second foundation here. So let's just do a little review so far, what we've gone through so far. Uh, during the first uh, teaching on this, we talked about what inspiration is. Can anyone tell me what inspiration is? So Tracy. Uh, God breathe. God breathe, okay. Hannah, did you have your hand up? Okay, same thing. All right, good. <clears throat> now, what does that mean, God breathe? What does that mean? Someone explain it to me. Josh? Um, God uses someone um, uh, that he chooses, and he speaks through them to write down the things that he wants to mm -hmm. be written down. Okay, good. Now, does this mean that uh, everything that is written down is a, is thus saith the Lord in the sense that God said it through that person? No, it does not mean that. It means what was written down, the graphe, the scripture. And we think about graphic pencil. When you think about scriptures, the Greek word graphe, what was written down was inspired by God. That's why, uh, you know, men can oftentimes, you know, if we're trying to remember something that happened 10, 20 years ago, we might forget some of the details. Especially as we get older. We begin to forget details sometimes. <laughs> Uh, whether you want to or not. <clears throat> but when the Holy Spirit's involved, God's involved, that's not possible. And we're talking about inspiration here. There's no free will to forget these things or lose these things from memory. Even Jesus promised the disciples who wrote the, script, the New Testament Scripture, he says, the Holy Spirit will bring forth to your remembrance everything I spoke to you. Remember, Johnson, at the end of his uh, uh, Gospel, he said, you know, all the things Jesus Christ did, all the books in the world could not contain them. But I write these things that you might have eternal life. So he could have wrote a lot more. And these men, I mean, John wrote that around 96 AD, around that time, 60 years removed from when the events actually happened. That tells you the Holy Spirit's involved. Okay, that he can remember them in such detail like that. Either that, or he had a really keen mind. But you see, when people try to come against the doctrine of inspiration, obviously they're not coming into our worldview, stepping into our shoes and trying to implode it from the inside out. They're using, well, there's no such thing as God, no such thing as inspiration, therefore this is just a man-made document. That's not what it claims about itself. And so anytime we're trying to critique someone else's religion or worldview, we have to step into it and see what it says and so, implode it from the inside out. And show them how it doesn't work. Okay? Mormonism, Islam, all different kinds of religions out there. But when someone tries to do it with our religion, it can't happen. Okay, we talked about inspiration. Now, Josh said he used uh, certain men. Now, what kind of men were they? Holy men. These weren't sinful men. They were holy men. Which obviously helps us to understand uh, how to interpret Romans 7, 14 through 25. Okay? And we'll get to that more later. You know, Paul couldn't have been seven, the Romans 7, 14 to 25 man while he's writing Romans. Or while he's writing the rest of the scriptures. He wouldn't be qualified to write the scriptures according to the Bible. We also talked about the eyewitnesses who, who wrote God's word. They were eyewitnesses. They were holy men. They were men who died for what they wrote down. Now, if you wrote down a lie, and you knew it was a lie, would you die for it? 
surely you would humble yourself at that point, at the least, and say, you know what? It was all a lie. It was all a bag of goods I tried to sell you, and I'm going to repent of it now. But these men died for what they said they saw with their own eyes and touched with their hands. This man, Jesus, who died, who rose again, they saw him afterward, they saw the nails in his hands and his feet, and the hole in his side, they saw those things. And they died for it. And we know the Bible says about itself, thus saith the Lord over 3,000 times. And we talked about the uh, trustworthiness and reliability of the scriptures. What's some facts I gave you for that? Give me some of the uniqueness about the Bible. Isaiah? That's right. Best-selling book of all time. Up until 1974, just from the Bible societies, over 2.5 billion copies sold. Up until 1974, just from Bible societies. Okay. What else? What else is unique about the Bible? Yes. Yeah. Well, it could be that. Yeah. If 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 we're assuming that Adam wrote some, maybe Abraham wrote some, or Noah wrote some, that's true. Over four thousand year span. Now, typically, scholars will say over fifteen hundred year span because they're assuming Moses wrote all of Genesis. It's an assumption they're making. Genesis does not say that, okay? But at least a 1,500-year span, okay, at least. What else? What else is unique about it? It speaks of the scientific discoveries that man discovered later. Right. spoke of them in the Scripture. That man couldn't have known at the time. Mm -hmm. No way they could have known at the time. In fact, later on in history, after the Bible was written, the Old Testament, there's things that disagree with what was said back then, and then finally science came around and found out what the Bible said was true. Yes. What else is unique about the Bible? Hannah. It survived yes, survived persecution like no other book has. Um, many different bouts of persecution, trying to wipe out the Bible. That that famous French philosopher Voltaire. What what did he say about the Bible and about Christianity? Anyone remember? Yep, that Christianity will be extinct within a hundred years of his death. Now, what was the ironic thing about him saying that? Now, he already had a printing press in his house. The Geneva Bible Society bought his house, bought his printing press, and began to print thousands of Bibles from that very printing press. And uh, it's been over a hundred years. What are you saying, Voltaire? Oh, you're lifting up your eyes in Hades. Lift up your voice in Hades. For Voltaire is now. Because he didn't repent of his sins. So these men who tried to defy God. You know, the Bible says, Hades will not overcome my church. Death will not overcome my church. It will last to the end. It will last to the very end. How many languages was the Bible originally written in? Three, that's right. How many authors did it have? Over 40 authors, that's right, that's right. And this is really a, a, an interesting thing for me. It deals with lots of controversial subjects from all these different authors, from these different spans of time, from these different continents they wrote from, and they all agree emphatically. I like to see two people who agree on everything emphatically, who are living in the same period of time, from the same culture, from the same background, from the same neighborhood, raised by the same parents. It's almost impossible in this day and age. 
That's not what we have with the Bible. Okay, now last week we talked about hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? Anyone? Josh? That's right. Principles used in properly interpreting or understanding the scriptures. It comes from the Greek word hermeneia. <clears throat> now, I gave you one scripture, Luke 4, uh, 24, 27, last, uh, last week for hermeneutics, which is where Jesus is it's translated as expounding upon all of the Old Testament. It's also other times it's used, like in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. It's used 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 times. And it's talking about the gift of interpretation in reference to tongues. Okay. All right, so we see these uh, the principles of interpretation. And today we're going to go through, I gave you ten principles of interpreting the Bible. And then I gave you like seven other ones that are kind of like, you know, tips, I guess you can say. But we're going to go through the first five principles today and give you examples of each one. Uh, so you can understand more hands-on, more kind of on-the-job training how to use this and how to interpret the Bible properly. So the first rule of hermeneutics is to recognize that it is God's word that you are interpreting. Okay, we just touched on that a second ago. You know, I, recently I looked up on the internet, uh, I typed in on Google, uh, Bible contradictions. And there's these atheistic websites which are full of supposed contradictions in the Bible. And I looked through them and just had to laugh. Because most of them I knew how to deal with already just from reading the scriptures for myself and rereading and understanding and trying to find the context of what it's saying and trying to harmonize the scriptures. Remember we did that with Matthew? Harmonizing the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when they have the same story. We're trying to harmonize them. So we realize there's no contradiction in God's word. Now, if you don't start with that principle that this is God's word you're dealing with, and if it is God's word, it can have no contradictions, then guess what? You're going to go looking for contradictions, which is what people like atheists and Muslims and so on and so forth try to do. They don't try to give it the benefit of the doubt. They go looking for these things. So let's look at uh, some uh, supposed possible contradictions. Look at Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28. Some of you may remember this. This is probably from June of last year. We went through this in fellowship, so you might not remember it. Matthew 8.28, it says, When he, Jesus, had come to the other side of the country of the uh, Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce that no one could pass that way. Okay, so we see that. Let's go to Mark 5. In verse 2, let's see Mark's account of this. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 1 of Mark 5. Uh, then they, talking about Jesus and disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him, out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So here we have Matthew 8, 28 saying, two men. And we have Mark 5, 2 saying, one man. Now, if you go to an atheist website, they might listen to the contradiction. Do you see a problem with that? Do you see a problem with them listing as a contra- contradiction on their website? Oh, yeah, there's a problem with that. Yeah. So, so one says one man, one says two men. 
if uh, me and Brother John are walking down the street and we see a car accident, and Brother John says, uh, there were two cars involved, and I say there were three cars involved, does that necessarily mean there's a contradiction between his account and my account? Maybe he's just talking about just the two cars. And maybe I'm just talking about just the three cars. Now, if he would have said there's only two cars, one word inserted in there, and I said there's at least three cars, now do we have a contradiction? Yes. Right, but does that say that here when Mark, in Mark 5, 2, it said there was only one man? So Mark is simply focusing upon one of the men in the account, while Matthew tells you how many there actually were there. Okay? And if Luke were to say, if Luke's account were to say there were three men there, would we have a contradiction then? We still wouldn't have one because Matthew does not say there was only two men. Do you see the difference here? You see how we harmonize the scriptures? Uh, Matthew 26 and verse 34. Let's look at the account of what uh, Jesus said to Peter as he's predicting with his exhaustive foreknowledge, Peter's denial of him, his thrice denial. And in Matthew 26 and verse 34, after Peter says, I'll never be made to stumble, he, Jesus says to him, Surely I say to you, this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Okay? Now let's go to uh, Mark's account of this. Let's go to Mark 14 and verse 30. Same situation. Peter says, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Now here we have Jesus saying twice. The first time, did he say the word once? Oh, he didn't say, he didn't give a numeral to it, did he? Now, if Jesus would have said, before the rooster crows once, you'll deny me, and then he says twice here, then we'd have a contradiction, wouldn't we? But he didn't say that in Matthew. But if you go to an atheistic website, maybe infidels.org, and you go to look for Bible contradictions, you may find this list as a Bible contradiction. Because they're not starting with the premise, the Bible is what it claims to be, the Word of God, and therefore I should seek to harmonize it. They start with the premise, I'll just know the book. A dusty book from antiquities written by goat herders who roamed around the desert. Yes, they seek to disharmonize it. They have a bias coming in. Now, we have a bias coming into it, too. But we have the right bias. Okay? Let's go to the actual account of what happened, Matthew 26, when he actually did... Uh, deny Jesus. Matthew 26, starting in verse 69. <clears throat> now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were, with, who were there, This fellow also with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you are the one, you are also one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know this, the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered 
the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. Even there it doesn't say once, right? Because he's quoting Jesus from back in, uh, early on in the chapter. Okay, let's go to Mark chapter 14. Look at Mark's account of when Jesus, uh, when uh, Peter betrayed Jesus. Mark 14, starting in verse 66. <clears throat> now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. So you see, he quote, the rooster crowed twice here. And one other thing I want to bring to mind, I've told you this before in fellowship, there are no quotations in the Bible. Okay, Those are inserted by the translators uh, because I think they're quoting what he says. Okay, So you see, in these two instances here, we see... Uh, Crowing twice before he denies him and crowing before he denies him. Not crowing once, but crowing before he denies him, or right after he denies him. Um, so we don't have a, an inherent contradiction here because there's no uh, adjective like once or one time in the Matthew accounts. But if you go to an atheistic website, they might say, well, this is a, this is a problem we see here. Okay, uh, Let's go to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Matthew. Of, of of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. And let's start in verse 6. And this is one of the crucial parts here. It says, And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Excuse me. And then down in verse 16... And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. So, two things here. Once, and this, in this genealogy, it's coming from David through Solomon, and it's, uh, Jacob begetting Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Now let's go to Luke's genealogy. And that's found in Luke chapter 3. Of course, the people who don't think the Bible is God's word would try to find a contradiction here. And another thing to keep in mind, one thing that I really like about the New King James translation of the Bible is that when there are words that are translated, or actually that are put into the English translation that are not found in the Greek, it's italicized. So you know that. They're being very honest and upfront with you about that. That if they're putting words in there, they think help to help you to understand the passage as the reader of the Word of God, the studier of the Word of God, they put it in italics. Okay? Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. 
being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. So now we have the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. But back in Matthew's gospel, it says that Joseph, the son of Jacob. But keep in mind, that's where this comes into play here. The word the son of are in what? They're in italics there. So it's just of Heli. Okay? And it was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph. Okay? That little modifier there may give us a little clue as to whose genealogy Luke is actually referring to here. Now back in, in, in Matthew, it actually says the son of Jacob. So it's tracing it all the way back. Therefore, I, I conclude that Matthew's referring to the actual genealogy of Joseph. Whereas in Luke, as supposed as the son of Joseph, and he, the word the son of Heli is not actually there, I would suppose this is talking about Mary's genealogy. Okay? And if you go to verse 31, we go to David here. It says, uh, the son of Melia, the son of Manan, the son of uh, Medatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. So different genealogies altogether here are being talked about. So one is Mary's genealogy, the one in Luke is Mary's genealogy, the one in Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. If you go to an atheist website, they'll probably try to tell you this is a contradiction. Is it a contradiction? And maybe if the son of was actually in the scriptures, you might be able to say it's a contradiction in, in Luke. Okay, You might be able to say that. But even then, my father-in-law calls me his son sometimes. My stepfather calls me his son. That doesn't mean I'm actually his biological son. It doesn't mean that. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Okay? You're, uh, for you men here who are married, your, your in-laws might call you their son. For you, you women here who are married, your in-laws might call you their daughter. That's the way it happens sometimes. So even that would not necess necessitate a contradiction in God's word. So these are a few things that when we were dealing with this first principle of hermeneutics, we're dealing with these issues about how we approach the scriptures. That we're approaching it with reverence. That we're approaching it trying to understand it. That if we, like I said last week, if you run into a supposed contradiction, put a question mark there, and maybe the Lord will reveal to you later on, through your own study, through seeking out godly counsel, through your chain of command, so to speak. If you're a child, you go to your parents first. If you're a wife, you go to your husband first. You know, of course, after you've gone to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God yourself, you do that. And then, men, if you can't figure out with the Holy Spirit and your own study, you can go to another man who you respect in the faith who might be able to help you. Okay? That's the way it works. Um, but you put a question mark next to it, and you're working under the assumption this is God's Word, and there are no contradictions in God's Word. Okay? So if you stumble upon one you think might be, uh, it may take time. Some of these things took me time. I've been a Christian for 16 years. You know, it takes time sometimes when you're studying something out. You know, people go to uh, go to school to be get a bachelor's degree. That's four years, right, for one subject. If they're going to be a doctor, they may go for six or eight more years. That's twelve years. You know, so if someone will put that much time into a temporal, physical occupation that they'll make money from to provide for the family, how much more time should you spend upon God's word and seeking out it and seeking to understand it? Even more time. So you've got to give it time to understand it properly. Okay? The Bible is not always to, easy to understand. Okay? But it is understandable, otherwise God would not have given it to us. God gives His Word, what is contained in this Bible, to you and to me, because it is understandable. It just may take time. Remember that 2 Timothy 
2.15 passage, that that's the whole point of hermeneutics, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that may not be ashamed? Yes. Same with a doctor. You know, if a doctor goes into surgery, he doesn't want to walk out of there with someone dying. He doesn't want to walk out of there with someone having uh, losing their life or having bad things happen because of what he has done. He wants to be approved. He wants to do what is right and for them to come out successful. And that's what God wants you to be with his word. He wants you to understand it properly. So you know how to apply it to yourself and how to apply it to others. But it will take time. But hermeneutics of using these principles is easy if you use them properly. Okay? So the first one, recognizing that you're, you're, you're dealing with God's word and that is what you're interpreting. The, the second one is read, read, and reread. I've been reading the Bible for 16 years now. Brother Kevin, what, 18 years for you? Something like that? Brother John, about 16 or 17 years? Okay? Long time. You read any book that long, study any book that long, you're going to have a PhD in it. You're going to have high accolades. You're going to have these $100,000 pieces of paper you call a degree on your framed on your wall from studying it for that long. Okay? So you need to study God's Word. You need to read it, read it, and reread it. Now, I'm going to give you some passages that I've had to read, read, and reread to understand them properly. I'm not going to go into depth with them right now because I want you to try to do it yourself. I'm not going to do the work for you. You need to do it yourself because these passages are going to be hard for you to understand. Some of these passages I've talked about in this fellowship, but even then it may be hard for you to understand. Okay? Passages like Romans 7, which I mentioned earlier today, especially verses 14 through 25. But if you apply the principle that you're learning in this teaching and in the next teaching that I've mentioned the very last teaching, you will be, under, be able to understand them properly. Okay? So Romans 7, Ephesians 1. It's a scripture that Calvinists love to use through verse 14 to try to promote this doctrine of God picking and choosing who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. Yeah, primarily 1 through 14 of Ephesians 1. And with Romans 7, 14 through 25. Romans 9. The whole chapter. People try to use this to say that God hates certain people and loves other people by his choice. He's picking and choosing who he's going to hate and who he's not going to hate. In the literal sense of the word hatred, unconditionally hating them. Wanting the worst for them in that sense. People will use Romans 9 to prove that. Or try to prove that. The book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is one of the most misunderstood books in all of Christian history. Especially starting with the Reformation. If you understand the book of Galatians through the eyes of Martin Luther, you'll be messed up. You'll think God doesn't require you to live holy, and if you try to live holy, you're a legalist. And you've fallen from grace, and you're on your way to hell. That's what you'll come out of reading Galatians if you read it through Martin Luther's eyes, or through Augustine's eyes. You know, but if, if you understand it properly in light of Acts 15, and light of the whole situation that, that Paul was dealing with, being an apostle to the Gentiles, dealing with the Judaizers... Then you'll understand Galatians properly. It's coming against being circumcised to be justified and obeying the law of the Old Testament to be justified. That's what you under, if you understand it properly, that's what you come out with, with that. And I've taught through Galatians before in this fellowship. So these, these are some passages that, that in my opinion you have to read, read, and read. And if you, if you caught it, the little, the little thing there that they're all from whose writings? Paul's. I mean, read 2 Peter 3.16. What did it say again? Do you remember that? Some things Paul says are hard to understand, in which some unstable people have twisted to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. 2 Peter 
Now, Peter's one of the apostles. Yeah, so he had a hard time understanding something Paul said. But if you understand it properly, you have to understand, when it comes to writings of Peter, the writings of James, the writings of John, uh, the writings of Jude, a lot of times you can take one of their verses and understand exactly what they're saying. With Paul, you really can't do that. He had a long, I mean, he, this guy was a smart guy. He had a long, like he's writing a thesis, a long, drawn-out argument. Really, if you want to understand Romans properly, read the whole thing in one sitting. Read it again. And read, for a whole week or for a whole month, read Romans through. Just keep reading it through. You don't have to read it half, I mean, it's 16 chapters, not that big a deal. Maybe just read eight and then read the next eight the next day, if you can't handle it all in one day. But it's, it's not too much to set aside that much time for God's Word, is it? Read all of Romans. Or if, you, or if you think that's too hard at first, start with a smaller book. Start with Philemon. Or start with Jude. Or maybe Ephesians. Okay, Read it all the way through to understand what is being said. That's the way Paul is. And if you read the Bible enough, you read it for 16 years or so, you'll understand this. That you need to read Paul's writings in that way. To understand what he's saying. Okay, So the crucial point in, in uh, church history at that point in time. Okay, the third principle was understanding the literature you are reading. Okay? Uh, whether it's historical narrative. And what I mean by that is you're telling something in history. You're narrating something that happened in history. That's what historical narrative is. Okay? Whether you're dealing with poetry, like the Psalms or Song of Solomon. Uh, whether you're dealing with wisdom literature, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. Or whether you're dealing with teaching letters like Paul's epistles or apocalyptic literature, which is full of symbolism like Revelation and Ezekiel. Okay. You have to know what literature, and you, I mean, this is not something that's really hard to do. You all do it every day. You know, for those of us who used to read newspapers, I know it's kind of a thing of the past these days because we read everything online. Uh, that includes me. I read most of my news online these days. But if you, if you, if you read the newspaper in the past, you know, there's different sections. The first page will have a little block that says, tells you where each section is. And you know you're going to read um, the obituary section different than you read the classified section. Okay? It's different categories of what you're reading. You know you're going to read the front page, which is probably full of opinions. Different you're going to read the sports section, which is full of statistical facts, stats. You know if it says he hit one home run, he's not, they're not lying to you, he hit one home run. But if the person on the front page is telling a story about what happened and giving their opinion on it, there could be some lies in there. Okay, so anytime you're reading something, you're dealing with a different... Oh, what about the comic strip? You're reading that a lot different than you're reading anything else in the newspaper. Okay, let's go to magazines at Walmart, kind of get into the more modern age. You know, you go... I used to look across the magazine section. You have the sports magazines. You have the health magazines. You have the food magazines. You have the car magazines. And you're going to read them all a little bit differently. Okay? And what they're trying to do, they're trying to sell it to you. So they'll put a little catchy thing on the front that'll catch your attention to get you to buy it. You know, I used to read, uh, and this is a wicked comic book, but I used to read mad comic books. I read the mad comic books differently than I read, you know, the Sports Illustrated or Sports Digest. I read those things different than I read the Men's Health magazine, which is a wicked magazine, too. This is all from my past. I'm just trying to help you understand that you, you, when you read different pieces of literature, you read them in different ways. Uh, when you watch TV or movies, you watch them differently. 
if you watch a movie that's a biographical movie, you're going to take most of what is said in there as fact, as historical fact. But if you watch a movie that's a biblical movie, now what are you doing? Let's open the Bible, children. Let's see if that's what it actually says, right? Isn't that what you're doing? That's what I'm doing, right? If I'm watching something like Little House on the Prairie with my children, some of it's based upon fact, but most of that, that movie, that, that TV series, is based upon a little bit of the characters, but they have their own stories here to make it more interesting. And so I have to stop and say, well, should Laura have hit that girl there? No, she shouldn't have hit that girl there. She shouldn't have fought her. Should, uh, should she have lied about this? No, she should have told the truth. You know, she stopped to talk about these things. Uh, and even that's different than dealing with a drama. You know, drama is sometimes trying to appeal to your emotions to get you to cry about, you know, they call them the, the chick flicks or the girly movies. They're trying to get you to uh, appeal to your emotions and get you to cry and, and get you to feel good or feel bad inside, whatever it may be. That's what they're trying to do. Comedies are trying to make you laugh. Okay? Some of them are wicked comedies. I don't laugh at them anymore. But comedies, their main purpose is to make you laugh about something. And so you're approaching all these movies a different way. What about musicals? Its main goal is to get you to sing along. You know, get you to get this tune in your head, like the ones in Sound of Music. You can't get them out of your head anymore, so let's, let's make it into a biblical song instead, right? You know, so you, you, you get all these things in your heads. Um, action movies is, is to wow you. They have all these special effects flying all over the place, and they're trying to wow you. And a cartoon movie. You're definitely approaching that a little bit differently, aren't you? You used to see things like, you know, Oscar's Glacis, his tongue is sticking out 20 feet. Can a lizard's tongue stick out 20 feet? It's not reality. Can cars talk? It's not reality. And so you're not approaching it as real. You're approaching it a little bit differently. You're approaching the biographical, which is mostly real. And so you're dealing with, with different literature, different things in different ways. And so when it comes to the, to, um, uh, the Bible, you're approaching things differently depending upon what literature you're dealing with. Even with other books. You have encyclopedias, you have dictionaries. You're approaching those two things a lot differently. You're approaching like a non-fiction or a fiction book, right? Aren't you approaching it a little bit differently? Fiction and non-fiction even approach differently. Fiction is mostly just a story. Non-fiction is supposed to be telling you the truth. It's supposed to be. Um, you know, if you if you're if you were in public school, you would approach a science book if you're a Christian differently than a math book, right? And a math book, you know, you're, you're most of them with facts: two plus two equals four all the time. But you deal with a science, but talking about evolution in millions of years, you have to approach that a little more critically, don't you? Okay, so no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what input is coming into your system, you're dealing with it differently. So when it comes to different uh, types of literature in the scriptures, it's the same thing. You have to filter it through what kind of literature you're dealing with. So let's go with poetic literature first. Let's go to Psalm 51. In poetic literature, there's lots of symbolic stuff there. Lots of uh, non-literal language. Remember, picture it last week. You have that 15-pasture van with poetry in there and wisdom literature in there and apocalyptic literature in there. Who's driving the van? Mr. Literal is driving the van. Okay? So we know that when it's poetic, symbolic language, it doesn't drive the literal. The other way around is what happens. Okay? Mr. Poet's all the way in the back of the van. Okay? He's like last place. When it comes to these things. But poetry is good. Think about poetry. It helps you remember things easy. It flows. has a nice flow to it. So if you want to memorize something from the Psalms, it just flows great, man. It makes it so easy to memorize it. Right? So Psalm 51. 
And let's look at just verse 5. And I'm not going to go too in-depth with this because I've talked about this before, but I'll just give you an example of how to deal with this. Psalm 51, verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now this verse is used a lot to promote this idea that you're born a sinner, the doctrine of original sin, right? This is promoted a lot with this verse. But if you just take the context of it, and let's start in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness." According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my sin, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, that I shall be clean, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. So we have lots of language in here that could be literal or non-literal. So let's look at a couple over here. Let's see this, uh, verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. Now I didn't read the, the beginning part before I have mercy. It says, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So what is he doing here concerning that sin? He's repenting of it. This is a psalm of repentance, a psalm of penitence, because he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, right? Didn't he sin against Uriah? But in verse 4, it says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Is he being literal there? Does that have basis in reality? Psalms, poetry, what do people do with poetry? Oftentimes they try to express their what? Their feelings. Their emotions. And David is simply expressing how great he sees his sin to be in God's sight. Okay, so when he says against you and you only have a sin, he's not being literal. We know from the historical narrative about this situation that he also sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba at the least. You could even make a case that he sinned against the whole nation of Israel by being the king and doing such great evil, and they all knew it, they all found out about it. They all found out about it. Let's go to uh, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. Purge means to cleanse. Now, is David going to be cleansed by this plant called hyssop? Is that what's going to cleanse him of his sins? No. The forgiveness of God through the future blood of Jesus and through the sacrifice he, was, he would give at that point in time, that is what cleansed him of his sin. Uh, at the end of verse 8, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Now, in the historical narrative, we have no evidence whatsoever that David's bones were broken by God. I guess it's possible. So I'll give someone who wants to read that verse literally, give them that. Maybe God broke his leg or broke his arm or something. I don't really know. But the narrative does not say it did. But this second part, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Does anyone here have a bone that has a mouth on it? How about vocal cords? Teeth? Tongues? Lips? So are these bones really rejoicing and singing? So he's not being literal there either. So see, even within Psalm 51, there's lots of non-literal stuff here. And verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, good thing we're reading the New King James or the King James here, because the NIV says, I was born a sinner. I mean, it literally just says that. And that's not what the Hebrew says. And the NIV is not a literal translation. Remember I told you about the, the, the dangers of using a non-literal translation? 
where people put their own theology into the Bible, the translator, instead of actually translating what the Hebrew and Greek says. But what it says here, I was brought forth in iniquity. So let's, let's take the literal approach just for a second here. I was brought forth in iniquity. Now, what was sinful about what happened to David? The manner in which he was brought forth, right? He was brought forth in iniquity. If we're taking the literal approach here, the manner in which he was brought forth. Now, if you're a baby and you're brought forth a certain way, have you done anything wrong? If I take Delia and I bring her forth over here, can she stop me from bringing her forth? She's just a baby. And she's been around for four or five months now. So, you know, I bring her forth. She has no power. A baby has no power in how they're brought forth. So can they be held accountable for the way they're brought forth? Of course not. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, who is the subject of the sin there in that verse? Mom, not David. The manner in which he was conceived was sinful. Okay? Now, we don't know all the history of David's mother and everything that happened. Okay? So we could assume certain things if we want to take it literally. Okay? Um, but what I would say is verse 5 is simply saying, because David is so overwhelmed with the sin he's committed, the wickedness he has committed, that he's simply saying that I'm following in my mother's footsteps. Okay? I'm just like she was. That's the conclusion I can come to. But I can tell you this much. This verse is not a proof text for original sin. They were born as sinners. If it is, if David is saying, you know, the reason I'm a sinner is because I was born that way. Does it become a prayer of repentance or a prayer of excuse? It's a prayer of excuse. Because if you're a born a sinner, do you, do you have any, any hope for yourself? Is it your fault the way you were born? If you're born with blue eyes, is it your fault? If you're born with black hair, was it your fault? Whose fault was it? God's fault. The way you're born is God's fault. And guess what? He makes no mistakes. Even if you're born with one leg or six toes, God didn't make any mistakes. God had a reason for that. If God makes you to be four foot eleven when you're done growing, He didn't make a mistake. If God makes you to be seven foot tall, God didn't make any mistakes. If he wants you to have one green eye and one blue eye, he didn't make any mistakes. Okay? If he wants you to have a big nose or a small nose, he didn't make any mistakes. Okay? If he wants you to have, uh, if he gives you DNA for lots of facial hair or for very little facial hair. I'm talking men, obviously. Uh, <laughs> he didn't make any mistakes. Okay? I remember when I was 13 years old, I, I, or 12, 13 years old, I was coveting a goatee. I really wanted one, so I started shaving. Shave, 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 shave. Ow, 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 ow. And eventually I started growing something. Now I wish I hadn't have done that. You know? But anyway, Psalm 51.5 cannot be used as a proof text for original sin. So we have to come to the poetry, the poetry, and look at the context, what's being said. And remember, Mr. Literal is driving in the van. And we can go to Ezekiel 18 if we wanted to. It would prove Psalm 51.5, the interpretation people give to it, wrong. Completely wrong. And Ezekiel 18 is literal. Okay? Uh, let's go to Psalm 58.3. <clears throat> and I'm just going to give you this verse. I'm not going to even talk about it. I'm going to let you figure it out yourself. Give you a little bit of homework for yourself. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Now, I'm not going to talk about 
50 A3, but I'm going to give you just one comparison here. 51.5, if we take it the, the way the NIV people want to take it, is that you were conceived in sin. From the moment you were conceived, you were a sinner. Now it's saying you go estranged from the womb. That as soon as you're born, you're speaking lies. Well, which one is it? Are you a sinner after you're born or when you're conceived? See, if you take the literal interpretation of this verse and Psalm 51.5 from the NIV, you're going to have a problem, aren't you? You're going to have a contradiction. Because your, your starting point of the sinner has got to start somewhere. Right? It can't be when you're conceived and when you were born. Because if you go astray, you weren't astray before that point. But I'm going to give you some homework. I want you to figure out what this verse is saying here. Use the principles I gave you last week and figure out what this verse is saying here. And see if you can understand it. Okay? Right, let's move on to the next uh, genre here. So poetry is one genre. Let's go to wisdom literature. Let's go to Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Now here's a good saying to remember about Proverbs. They are not promises, they are Proverbs. Some people take prom Proverbs as promises. There are some promises in it, I agree with that, but not every proverb is a promise. Proverbs 22 and verse 6. We all know this verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. Finish it for me. Is that a promise? If I raise Malachi the right way, does that mean he's guaranteed to be a Christian all his life and go to heaven? No, we know that from other scripture, from teaching scripture, from the New Testament. That just because you train someone properly does not mean they're... I mean, do they lose free will all of a sudden? No, I do not. But a lot of people who believe in one saved, always saved. Even the guy I talked to recently about his daughter. And she's living in wickedness as can be. I wonder if she'd ever say, to be honest. But he said, well, I'm just holding on to that promise. I should come back. But it's not a promise. It's a proverb. General wisdom statements. General statements of wisdom. That's what a proverb is. So just because you tramp a child properly does not mean that when they're old they can't depart from it. But it also means this. That if you don't tramp a child properly, you think they'll have much chance? No. A lot of times, I was a youth pastor for a long time, and uh, I saw a lot of youth, and their parents were, were Christians, professing Christians, came came to the fellowship of the saints, and they didn't do a very good job, if you ask me, of training their child. They believe it was a youth pastor's job. But who does the Bible say his job it is? That's right. That's right. Let's go to Proverbs 28.1. This is one, I love this verse. One of my... Uh, Favorite scriptures. Y'all hear people say on the on YouTube videos, man, you're so bull. I say, I give them Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no man pursues, when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, wait a minute now. Does that mean if you flee persecution, you're not a righteous man now? Does that mean that if, if you uh, decide to move from one place where there's a big ruckus going on to another place that you've lost, or that you're not righteous, you're not bold anymore? It's not what it means. Okay, so I love this scripture, but it's not something that's a promise because the righteous do flee sometimes. Jesus fled sometimes from persecution. Did Jesus cease to be righteous in the moments in time? You see how Mr. Literal is driving the van? Do you see it? He's driving the van. Let's go to Proverbs 6. Talking, this gives some characteristics of a, of a wicked man here. Proverbs chapter 6. 
starting in verse 12. It says, A worthless person, a wicked man, walked with a perverse mouth. He winked with his eyes, he shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Let's stop right there. Uh, does that mean if you shuffle your feet that you're a wicked man? Does that mean if you point with your fingers, you street preachers, that you're a wicked man? Does that mean if you uh, wink with your eye, you're a wicked man? Not necessarily. These are some attributes of a wicked man, but if you do those things, does not mean you're necessarily wicked, because shuffling your feet is an amoral thing, is it not? Yeah, uh, pointing your finger. Repent, sinners! It's not a it's not a moral or immoral thing. It's an amoral thing. Winking your eyes. We have my children all the time. Don't I, Malachi? I wink at them all the time. Doesn't mean I'm a wicked man. You know, so the, these are things that we must be keeping an eye out for when it comes to these things. Let's go to um, Proverbs 6, right above that, verses 1 through 5. My son, if you become a surety... Now, surety is someone who's collateral... If someone gets a loan, you're kind of like the, if they default, you pay for them, okay? If you become a surety for your friend, if you have shaken hands and pledged for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. You do this, my son, and deliver yourself, for you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself, plead with your friend, give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Now, is this saying that you can never do this for a friend? Or that if you're doing this for a friend, let's say you, you uh, buy a house from them to pay payments to you, that you're, you're doing something that's wicked and you need to deliver yourself from it? No, these are general wisdom principles to be used for life. And you need to be careful, of course, who you're going to do this for. You know, if I've had, uh, when I first got married, I didn't have very good credit. I was uh, stupid with my money as a young guy. And, uh, you know, I had several times where I think, I think Angela's parents might have been a co-signer for us for a loan at one point in time, which means if we don't pay for it, we default on it, they're responsible for it. Okay? Uh, so you need to be careful who you do that for. It doesn't mean you, you absolutely cannot do that for a friend. That's not what it's saying. Not what it's saying at all. In fact, you know, even in the Old Testament, if you give a loan to a friend, which presumes you can do that, you shouldn't charge them interest. Which presumes you can do that. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given that principle in the first place. So, we see in, in, in Proverbs these general principles of Scripture. But there's also some things that are very little. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Is that literal or is that a general principle? That's literal. That's literal. Uh, Proverbs 13.24 It says this, it says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. That sounds pretty literal to me. And, and we can even back it up with Proverbs 23, 13, and 14, which says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Yeah, so this tells you, uh, parents, that you need to discipline your child swiftly, promptly, and according to what they have done wrong. And by doing so, you will save their soul from hell because you're being their God, so to speak. Because when they become a Christian later on, who's going to discipline them then? God will discipline them. 
And so that's probably that's part of the role, and Brother Kevin will get this later on when he talks about the foundation of the family. One of the roles of the parents is to show the child what God is like. To represent God properly. So when they come to this state of accountability, they can switch from the parents to God. And start following Him. Just as they were taught to follow their parents. So these things are very important to remember these things. There are some literal principles in the scriptures. Proverbs 16, 6. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Now we know that's true because it's backed up by other portions of literal scripture. Right? Didn't Jesus, didn't God provide an atonement for sin? In mercy and truth? And if you fear God, won't you depart from evil? You sure will. You sure will. So there's other things that are in the scripture that are that are literal things as well in, in Proverbs. And then also Proverbs seventeen fifteen. It says, uh, now of course, if you're a Calvinist or you think you can live and stay every single day and be a Christian, you're going to have a problem with this verse. Because they won't take this one literally. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now, if you think that God poured out his wrath upon his son, the just one, you condemned him, okay? And you, and you think God justifies people who are currently wicked, then I guess your, your own God is an abomination to God. So this is, this scripture here, I heard Paul Washer preaching this one time. And he was acting like it was God, and he was, God was contradicting himself. And God did these things. But this is a literal verse, in my opinion. <laughs> a general wisdom principle. Okay? So when it comes to Proverbs, we have to approach it in the right way. Let's go to historical narratives. Who's an example of sexual purity? David or Joseph? Joseph fled. He even had his clothes torn off. He was fleeing away. While David, he looked. He gazed. He lusted. He took, he took, he went forth and Got her for himself, even to the point where he's trying to cover up to, to kill her husband. So we, we see the historical narrative of telling the story of David. We know we're not to follow in his footsteps. Because little scriptures forbid it. Adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. We look at Joseph's example. We know we can look to him as an example because he fled it. And the Bible says flee sexual immorality. All other sins you commit are outside the body. But he who commits sexual morality sins against his own body. What the scriptures say. Uh, we look at um, the example of Noah when he got off the ark. What did he do? He got drunk. He got drunk. But will drunkards inherit the kingdom of God? So Noah, in that case, is not our example, is he? Okay. But it also says that uh, in Genesis 6... And, and, uh, in Genesis 7 and Genesis 9, that, that Noah was perfect and blameless. So what do we do with that? He was perfect, he was blameless, and then he was a drunkard. See, sometimes chronology of the events is very important. Chronology of the Bible. What, what order the events happen in. God called Noah perfect in 6 and in 7, and then in 9, he's a drunkard. What does it tell us about God's definition of perfection? Right now. Right now, current state. Doesn't mean you've never sinned. Doesn't mean you can't sin in the future. It means right now, God sees you as perfect in His sight. That's what it tells us. That's what we draw away from that, from that situation with Noah. We see with David. 
David was called um, a man for God's own heart. But then he sinned with your with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. Was he a, a man after God's own heart while he did those things? But I thought he was a man after God's own heart. So this is where it comes into play again, the chronology. When did it happen? It was 1 Samuel 13, before he's even anointed king, that God said this about David. He was searching after a man after his own heart. Does that mean he was still a man after God's own heart while he's sinning? See, sinners, antinomian Christians, will try to use this to say, well, I'm out here getting drunk, but I'm still a man after God's own heart. Impossible. Impossible. There's other situations when it comes to uh, narratives where things simply don't apply. Let's go to Genesis chapter uh, 1. Remember, in historical narratives, some things we don't follow examples of. Some things are simply uh, accounting what actually said. They're not principles to be followed, not giving you principles to be followed. And sometimes it even commands given to people in the Bible that do not apply universally across the board. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28. God speaking to male and female now. Then God blessed him, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now some people who would take these two verses of Scripture, Genesis 9-1 and Genesis uh, chapter 1 and verse uh, 28, and would apply them universally across the board to every single person. Now, if you're not being fruitful and multiplying, you're not having as many children as you possibly can, then you're in sin. Is that the way we should interpret these two verses? No, who would he say these things to? Okay, so what similarities do you see between these two situations? Beginning of period, okay. And what's the similarity of those two beginnings of periods? There weren't any people. There weren't any people. God wanted more people. There weren't any people. Okay? This doesn't mean that you can't apply it to your specific situation. God can speak this to you and say, I want you to have as many children as you can. But for you to take this and apply it to other people, as if God spoke it to them when he probably hasn't, now you're using improper hermeneutics. Okay? Because some other times of Scripture, Jesus and the Apostle Paul promotes being a eunuch for God. Well, how's that person going to have any children? Being single for life. How's that person going to have any children? What about those who can't have children? What are they going to do? You know, so these, these scriptures, you have this historical narrative here. First of all, he said it to Adam and Eve, and he said it to Noah and his sons. That's who he said it to in both these accounts. Doesn't necessarily mean it can't apply to us, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that it does apply to us. When you're dealing with a historical narrative, recording what happened, it doesn't necessarily apply to you as a principle for life. Does everyone understand that? Make sense? Okay. All right, so we, we uh, I think we've done enough on, on the, the different uh, genres of Scripture here. We went through three of them, poetic, wisdom, and historical narrative. I'm not going to go through apocalyptic this time. It takes a lot of time to go through that, and we'll be going through Revelation soon, hopefully, so 
We'll deal with a lot of it during that time. Okay? Let's go to the fourth principle of hermeneutics we talked about last time. Historical context. Uh, which is understanding when it was written, why it was written, who it was written by, and who it was written to. Uh, one example of this can be the Old Testament laws. Okay? Given to a Jewish nation, given to the Jewish people, uh, through Moses to the Israelites. Does not apply to us as New Testament Gentile Christians. Why? Because the Bible says so. If you know the history of the early part of the church, you can read Acts 15. Acts 15 says that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised to be saved. But in the Old Testament, if you want to be part of the commonwealth of Israel, a part of the chosen group of people, you have to get circumcised. If you are a Gentile and want to be part of the chosen of God, you have to get circumcised. Okay? But we know from other scriptures, remember Mr. Little was driving the bus here, we know from those scriptures that the Old Testament law does not apply to us. You read stuff like Galatians. With the right mindset, you'll understand these things as well. That the Old Testament laws do not apply to us. Uh, we're not under a theocracy. We're not living under a Jewish monarchy. We're supposed to be living under a constitutional republic, which is kind of fading away slowly over time. But we're required, according to New Testament scriptures, to be obedient to the law of our land. And the law of our land does not say that homosexuals should be stoned for their sin, then guess what? We're not to do that. That's the law of our land. We're to obey the law of our land as long as it doesn't cause to disobey God. Um, if the Old Testament law says, take the rebellious son and stone him, should we do that? No, we shouldn't do that. So these, some of these laws don't apply. The Old Testament law said to give sacrifices. But according to Hebrews, who's the final sacrifice for sins? Jesus. Okay. So we have to understand uh, when it was written, who it was written to, why it was written, and we'll understand these things more properly. Uh, another example of uh, number of, of the fourth principle of hermeneutics, understanding the historical context, is the, the book of Galatians, which I talked about a little bit so far. It was written by Paul to Galatian believers. It was not written by Martin Luther or Augustine to Christians or to people of their time. Okay. It was not dealing with, Galatians was not dealing with people who were trying to live so holy that they fell from grace. It was written to people who, these men came behind Paul's, his conversion of people in this area called Galatia, this, this uh, regional area. These people coming behind Paul and telling them they must be circumcised to be saved. If you read Acts 15, you'll understand the historical context of what Paul is dealing with in Galatians. And Paul is simply saying, if you get circumcised, you have fallen from grace. Now, for those who want to promote this idea that, um, you know, if you try to live holy, you're doing a work salvation, well, please tell me how you can fall from grace. If, if living holy is a sin, then what's the problem? You can't fall from grace, right? According to them, you can't fall from grace. But Paul says they did fall from grace. According to that, the, the people who interpret Galatians in that way, that is, if, if you're living holy, you've fallen from grace. You, you've, you've, it's just, it's, in their eyes, it's just a sin. If you're supposed to be sinning every day and your only sin is saying you stop sinning, then what's the problem? Is there really a problem? No, there really is no problem. So if you understand the historical context, 
and most, and I would recommend this. When you're talking about historical context, sometimes you can get it from commentaries, you can get it from other books, but try to get it from the Bible first. Okay? You can find the historical context of Galatians by reading Galatians, by reading Acts. You can get the historical context of who Paul is writing to, what the situation was, and why he's writing it. Okay? That way you, if you just read Galatians with this idea that Martin Luther had that, well, if I try to live holy, or if I say you're living holy, you have to live holy to be a Christian, then I've fallen from grace, you're going to mess up with a messed up understanding of what grace is, a messed up understanding of what God requires of you as a Christian, and how salvation works all together. Okay? But if you understand the historical context of who he's talking to and what the situation is, what he's trying to address, then you'll understand it properly. Okay? Okay, the fifth principle, the last one we'll talk about today, is literary context. Okay? Literary context is simply you take a verse, maybe you don't understand what it's saying, you look at the larger passage, okay? And then you look at the book itself, and then other books that were written by that same person, and then that testament, and then the whole of the Bible. Let's go to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3. Now the doctrine floating out there in what some suppose to be Christian circles that teaches something called total depravity, or total inability, which basically means... You can't, if you're a sinner, you can't seek after God, you can't repent, you can't believe until you're enabled to first. Uh, you have some kind of constitutional inability within you that, that says you can't believe, repent, or turn from sin, you can't even seek God. And, and really what they're saying is you have to become born again first and then you can repent and believe. Being born again enables you to repent and believe, according to them. Okay? So let's just read Romans 3, starting in verse uh, 10. It says, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks it for God. They've all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is, is under their, their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, someone comes to the scriptures with that preconceived doctrine I told you about, of total inability and total depravity, and they'll take this Romans 3, 10 through 18, and use it as a proof text to prove what they believe is right. Okay, so let's, let's just go up to, uh, one verse up to verse 9. Okay? What then? Well, we should see what, what then is there for, shouldn't we? What, what then is it there for? Let's go up to verse 1 of Romans 3. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is a prophet of circumcision? Oh, he's talking about Jewish people. Okay. Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, and but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness, who is the hour there? The Jews. If the Jews, because Paul was a Jew too, right? If, our, if the Jewish people's unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? 
Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I, I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, and he's speaking uh, th- theoretically here in these, these last couple of verses, as a man, as he said in verse 5, let us do evil that good may come, as we are so slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So is Paul saying those last two things he said? No, he's, he's speaking as a man. He doesn't say, let us do evil that good may come. But you know who said that? Martin Luther said that. Something very similar to that. And if you say you can live in sin all you want and still be a Christian, you're saying the same exact thing. Okay? He said, that, that's, he said that such people who say that about Paul, their condemnation is just. Verse 10. What then? Are we better than they? Well, who's the they? We know who the we there is, right? Who's the we? Jewish people. Who's the they? Well, let's find out. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So the point Paul is about to make in verses 10 through 18 using Jewish scriptures is that Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's all he's proving. And and really, literally, he's trying to prove that the Jewish people under sin, because the the Jews already believe that the Greeks are under sin. They already believe that. And we can really go back all the way back to Romans chapter 2 and verse 1 to get an even larger context of what Paul is talking about here. Okay? Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? The Jewish people are under the law. They had the law. They were under the law. So he just quoted all these things from verses 10 through 18 from the Jewish scriptures to prove to the Jewish people, listen, you're just like the Gentiles. You are a sinner. That's what he's saying. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world... All the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is a knowledge of sin. Well, if you have knowledge you're a lawbreaker and you're a sinner, no amount of obedience to the law is going to save you from your lawbreaking, is it? And then he goes on to talk about Christ and how you truly can be saved by faith. That's what he begins to talk about in verse 21. Okay? So we see, understanding the the literary context here, this fifth principle of interpreting the Bible properly is very important. I've only given you one example, but I'm sure you can probably, as you're reading through the Scripture, you're probably going to find more examples. And you come upon a verse that says, well, I don't understand that. Is he saying this here? He's saying this here. You need to spread out a little bit. Back up and spread out. Go above, go below. Go back a couple chapters you have to understand, especially in Paul's writings to understand exactly what he's saying. If you don't do that, and you take one verse, or even eight verses, nine verses, and isolate them from what Paul is actually saying, are you going to get what he's saying? If I write you a ten-page letter, and you take one sentence out of it, and try to understand what I'm saying from one sentence, you're probably not going to get what I'm saying. That sentence has the context of the whole ten-page letter. So it's important to understand uh, literary context. Okay, so today we've gone through uh, the first five principles of hermeneutics that I've given you. One is recognizing you're dealing with God's word that you're interpreting, so you seek to harmonize it. Understand that under that presupposition. Read, read, and reread in order to understand what God's word is saying. If you think it's a contradiction, put a question mark. 
Read it again. Read it again. Number three, identify the literature you're dealing with. We looked at the poetry and Psalms, the wisdom literature and, and Proverbs, and we looked at some historical narrative. Uh, understand the historical context. We'll get Galatians for that. Uh, and the Old Testament law, when it was written, why it was written, to whom, by whom. And now we've looked at the literary context. Understand something in light of its verse, passage, book, other books written by the same writer, that Testament and the Bible. Okay, that's where we're going to stop today. Um, does anyone have any questions or objections or anything they want to add? Yes, that's that's didactic is a Greek word for teaching. Yeah, so that would be like the epistles, or or when you see and, and didactic scripture can be found in historical narrative. It can be found in wisdom literature. It can be found in poetic literature. Okay, it can even be found in uh, you know what we call skeptical wisdom literature, like Ecclesiastes. You read Ecclesiastes, you have to read the first chapter very carefully to understand what perspective he's giving you here. When he says meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Is that really literally true? From a Christian's perspective? No, he's writing, he's writing as a man under the sun, apart from God. But at the very end, the last two verses, he concludes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now we know that's literal. Because Mr. Literal agrees with that. He agrees with that. Okay? And so even in those scriptures, there's, there's teaching in it. Okay? But when it comes to didactic literature or teaching literature, we're dealing with the epistles. All, all from, we talk about the Bible, we're talking about from Romans all the way to Jude. That's didactic teaching literature there. Okay? There's gonna, you're gonna find Jesus teaching in Matthew 5 through 7. That's included in that. Matthew 24, it's included in that. Okay? Uh, Revelation falls more into the line of the apocalyptic literature, but there's teaching stuff in there as well. <clears throat> and that's when you're dealing with the more literal. And the, and the didactic scripture, when you're being taught principles, especially the New Testament literature, that's going to drive the Old Testament even. The New Testament's going to drive the Old Testament. Okay. In fact, you can, you can, if you picture the van again, the 15 pastor van, Mr. Literal's in the front in the driver's seat, sitting next to him is Mr. New Testament, didactic t- teaching scriptures. Okay? He's sitting right next to him. Okay? And so they're, they're, they're a, a, a team here, a duo here. He might, he might even tell him a couple things every once in a while, like the wife does to the husband sometimes. You know, so they're, they're together, they're co-pilots, but the rest of them are following in line with those things. Okay? So the New Testament didactic teaching scripture always comes first because we are living in the New Covenant. We're not living in the Old Covenant. So it's going, so we comes to the Old Testament, we're going to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. Okay? So that's, that's all part of the literary context. Yes? Yeah, I'm uh, glad you brought that up. There's a lot of groups out there that will do the opposite. Mm-hmm. That they'll say, well, you need to get back to your Jewish roots and you have to understand the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. And they try to say that they put you under all these laws and all these ordinances. And, and so they say in order to become a good Christian, you have to first become a good Jew. And it's really the same thing that they did in Galatians. Right. Right. When you when you understand that situation, which is very important to understand as a Christian, what Paul dealt with as the apostles of the Gentiles, the Jew and Gentile issue, which is always being brought up. You saw it in Romans three. It's always being brought up. 
you understand that, you understand Paul's writing so much more clear. When I didn't understand that, I just was like wind tossed to and fro. I was about to become a Calvinist at one point because of that. So you need to make sure you understand the historical context of what he's dealing with there. And reading the book of Acts will help you do that because it's a historical narrative recording what actually happened. Not some Reformation idea in someone's head that they got from Martin Luther or from Augustine. But it's coming from the scriptures himself. Yes? Another thing to think of, I don't know if you went over it, is in the context of these, when Paul's asking a question, sometimes thinking about, well, what maybe are they saying to him? Right. Why is he responding to? What would a Jew be thinking? Like, you know how Jews would think, you know, I am, I am righteous. I've kept the law the whole time. I'm fine. What are you talking about? I'm right. Sinner. That what would a Jew have been saying to Paul in response or as an argument against him? That, and that's what Romans 2 is saying, and that's why Paul brought that argument at the at Romans 3, 9, where he says, as some slanderous report we're saying. Mm-hmm, yeah. There's a slanderous reporting that he's saying that let us do evil that good may come. Mm-hmm. So they're obviously, they have a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying, as many do even today, that Paul is saying grace is basically a license to sin, which Paul refutes with his own teachings in Romans 3 and in Romans 6, and Titus 2. And he refutes it with his own teachings. So you understand Paul as a whole... See, the, the whole point of understanding Paul as a whole here, going out to his other writings here? If you understand Galatians in light of Romans, okay, and Romans in light of Titus, you, you're defining the words, which we'll get to next week, by Paul's own writings. Yes, Sasha? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's all different kinds of, you can put it, make them the general, and you have the captain, and you have the privates in the back. Privates in the back. They're really back there now. There it is. Uh, but you got the privates in the back. All different kinds of, you know, analogies you can give to it. And, and Mr. Little doesn't really, like, throw them back there like I did my pen. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it, it, you have to understand that the New Testament didactic teaching scripture has the forefront, and it's mostly literal. And so you're going to deal with that above everything else, okay? And then it'll help you determine what from the Old Testament you're actually going to apply to yourself, too. Yeah, so when you're thinking of the Mr. Literal, you're thinking what can be taken literally. Yes. And what cannot be taken or should not be taken literally. Right. And to sift things that way when you're going through the Scripture. That's right. That's right. If you come to poetry and it says in Psalm 51.5 what it says in the NIV, you think to yourself, well, maybe there's something wrong here. And uh, keeping in mind we're dealing with translators here and what kind of translation you're dealing with, and what kind of genre or literature you're dealing with, and then keeping in mind other scriptures like Matthew, uh, Ezekiel 18, which says the exact opposite of what the NIV translators would have you believe, Psalm 51.5 says, uh, you come with a, away from the reading of Psalm 51 with the proper understanding of it. And that's why it's so important in second principle, read, read, and reread. You have to read through the scriptures, read them through to get the overall thing it's saying, but also studying certain portions of scripture. You're studying these portions, but you're reading and reading and rereading it to understand it. Joshua.
Um, I want to see if like they twisted that because if they didn't twist it, then atheists could use that as the Bible contradicts itself. Sure. Like right there. Right. So, right. That's an interesting Bible to have. Yes, <laughs> that is interesting. Like those two Bibles split. You can be looking between them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Follow along with them. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the NIV, I mean, there's one good thing, I guess, about NIV, if I can think of one, is uh, it's readability. It's really easy to read because they're, they're, they're translating something more phrase for phrase. They are word for word, okay? And they, they think, they may think they're doing the reader a service by, by doing what they do, but they're not. Um, because obviously they're, they're working on the assumption that their theology is correct, and therefore by giving you their theology, they're giving you the correct theology. But that's not the way God's word was meant to be handled. Amen. Amen. Yes. Amen. I use NIV for the first five, six years of my life. I think the good news is even maybe even more of a paraphrase than the. It's pretty much paraphrase. Yeah. 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 And I guess the people who who made these translations, they, they I mean, they might have had good intentions, but uh, their intentions went awry, if you ask me. And, and you're not just dealing with, like, if you're trying to help someone understand Plato or Aristotle, I can understand writing a paraphrase or maybe giving some cliff notes. But when you're understanding the Bible, no such thing. No such thing, in my mind. Yeah, uh, I was, was going to bring that up about motives and intents. You know, the disposition of someone's heart, uh, a lot of times will dictate what they try to do with the scripture. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who has the, the, the wrong motive and intent, their intention is not really to find truth for the sake of seeking truth. A lot of times you're just trying to justify their current lifestyle and to not change. Right. To justify their choice of, I'm not going to change no matter what, and I'm going to go to the Bible and prove the Bible's wrong. Well, when they go in that, that motive and intent, they come up with an atheist website of, 101 contradictions in the Bible. Right. That's what comes out as a result. Right. But if you go in with a pure intent of just learning <coughs> what the truth is and be willing to change, that's a pure heart. That's yep. a different motive and intent to go at the Scripture with. Right. So yep. you may have questions and doubts instead of going with a pure heart. Right, pure heart. Will definitely, definitely have doubts about things, but the, the, the answer to those things is to get those questions answered, get those doubts relieved, and it, even if you can't immediately, you just need to trust God. And realize it's His Word you're dealing with here. And another thing I wanted to bring up too was the uh, dispensationalists will take Paul's writings, so this is this is what I learned from, uh, and then dispensationalize all the epistles. Yeah. Yeah. I friend, the one the other day. That's all kinds of comments showing to make disciples of all nations, and those all got deleted, and that was why. I still have such a hard time dealing with that. I just can't go like just going out to the Bible. Right. I can apply to you, so. Well, they can't even deal with Paul's writings. I mean, I mean, just deal with Titus two eleven through fourteen. You know, living uh, godly, righteously. And, and, let me go back. 
soberly in this in this age, in this present age, this present age. Yeah. Uh, ESV English, stands for English Standard Version, and it's it's a more literal translation, but it's from the wrong set of manuscripts. Yeah, it's definitely Calvinist. I think there's lots of Calvinists who are on that, and lots of Calvinists promote it. I know uh, R.C. Sproul, who's a big-time Calvinist, he actually has a, a uh, ESV version Bible with his commentary, I think, or ES, ESV study Bible or something like that. So, Young's Literal, that's from the right manuscripts, but it's, it's really old, and it's really wooden. I mean, that's like as literal as you can be, man. Really, I mean, it, it, I, I, it's good, but it's just... Oh, it's, it's good. Just, it's not something you want to memorize from or, you know, read from. Study from, yes. I mean, it would help you. The next best thing to probably knowing the Greek would have Young's Little Bible next to your Bible. Like when you get to areas like John 3.16, it says in his King right. James, too. Where continue to believe. Well, our word believe can mean multiple things in different tenses. And right. Believe F means continuous. Yeah, but believe, believe doesn't really have a tense yeah. all by itself. Believeth means continuing in it. And if you go to the Greek, you know it's a present active indicative. So something you're continuing in presently. It's active right now, presently. But the young is literal. I think it's it continuing mean, to believe, believe, or as I say, believeth. Oh, he who is believing, something like that. Yeah. Of that yeah. So he, he's a, that's a real literal translation. Um, it never caught on as far as popularity because it's just really hard to read. You know, but as a study, a reference Bible to study from. If, if you have no plans to learn in Greek, which I, I've told you before, you have you don't have to learn Greek. You can read the New King James Bible and understand the Bible fine. But this, it'll help you to, to read Young's Literal. That will help. It's like Young's Literal is like reading English with a Greek mindset. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just sounds weird because we don't, we don't speak like that normally. He who is believing, you don't usually say something like that. It's right. Unless you're Yoda. He who is believing is definitely right now. Oh, yeah. Yes. Right. There's also, there's also books out there, even if you didn't learn the Greek, there's books out there that have the, the Greek and the English side by side, and it'll be a, someone's literal translation of the Greek into English all throughout the book. The Young's literal will be better. Yeah, King James, no matter what the King James people will try to say, King James only people will try to say, I should say. There is dynamic equivalence in the King James, okay, and sometimes there's sometimes there's good reason to I think um, not to put your own your own spin on it, but to to bring forth what the text is actually saying into words that are easy for us to understand. Like if you were to if you were a, tr- a translator, you know, I, I preached to a translator in the Philippines, and uh, I seriously doubt she was translating it word for word. You know, because there's different word orders in different languages and stuff like that. So she was probably just translating the way what my concepts were in a way for the people to understand. You know, if you're dealing with Spanish, you know, the word order in Spanish is different sometimes than it is in English. You know, so sometimes dynamic equivalence is not a bad thing. It's just when people put their own spin on it, their own theology, is when it's bad. Yes, Melke. Yeah, yeah. When you translate it, it'll be different. Yes, um, it might say box brown, or we'd say brown box. Yeah. So. 
Okay, anybody? Oh, Brother Tracy. Yeah, sometimes when I'm reading and I'm seeing a italicized word, I'll just stop for a moment and reread the verse. Without it. And without it. Right. Leave it out. Right. And see, what, is it, what does it seem like without the italicized word? And sometimes it helps. Yeah, it does help. It does help. I, I find that true with Romans 7. There's lots of italicized words in some crucial spots in Romans 7, and I, I take that out. And it sounds, it looks, reads a lot better if you ask me. Right. Well, that's a quote. That's quoted from the Old Testament, though. Okay. Did you bring up quoting Old Testament? Like no, that's that's next week. Okay. That's next week. Yeah. Yeah. Ro- Romans three. It's, it's italic because it's actually quoting. It says, "As it is written." That's why it's on italic, italics there. I, I wish. I really wish they would have done it a little bit differently. I wish they would have done something maybe underlined a word if it's not in the Greek or bold italicized, but. That can be confusing at times, but when it says there it is written, you know it's from the Old Testament. Right. And if you have a reference Bible, it'll actually tell you where the Old Testament is quoting from, too. Yeah. The Psalm 14, Isaiah 53, Ecclesiastes 720. There's uh, yeah, Psalm 59, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Proverbs 1, Isaiah 59. There's lots. I got all the references here. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, if you if you're thinking about getting a new Bible at any time in the future, I, I really recommend getting a reference Bible, okay, uh, where it references where this is found somewhere else in the Bible, where it's quoting from the Old Testament or it's even quoting from the New Testament or maybe even just a similar quote, similar thing from the Old Testament. New Testament. It's, it's really good to have that. It makes it easier to study God's Word. At the least, if you if you just got a new Bible that doesn't have that, or it's not a very good a third reference system, get a uh, treasure of scripture knowledge, like I told you about last time. Get a treasure of scripture knowledge, okay? And you can look these things up for yourself. All right? Anybody else?